This is Dr. Canadiana, a podcast about Canadian theatre history. I'm your host, Ashley Williamson. Episode 7, Theatre on the Cusp, Fortune in Men's Eyes and Canadian Playwriting. In this episode of Dr. Canadiana, I'll be talking to Dr. Cameron Crookston about John Herbert's play, Fortune in Men's Eyes. Our conversation addresses historical shifts in our use of language, our understanding of gender and sexuality, and how examining Herbert's play can help us better understand how these things operate now. Dr. Crookston and I will also be discussing the timing of Fortune in Men's Eyes. In many ways, Herbert was slightly ahead of his time, writing and producing and acting in theatre in Toronto just before 1967, and the turn toward the push to support Canadian plays, playwriting, and playwrights. He was known as an influential and important player in Canadian theatre by people with influence in the pre-1967 sphere, such as Roberts and Davies, and those with post-1967 clout, like Bill Glasgow. However, both Crookston and I speculate that his play and following career might have taken off in Canada if Fortune in Men's Eyes had come just a little later. The play itself tells a specific Canadian story, and it is in many ways exactly the kind of story that would become in vogue to make into a play in the 70s. It's Canadian, historical, autobiographical, and describes social issues, the marginalization of queer people, institutional abuse, that houses like Passmarai, Factory, and Nightwood would find success telling five to six years later. It's this almost there position, as well as its subject matter, that gives Fortune in Men's Eyes its position in the Canadian drama and theater canon. My guest today is Dr. Cameron Crookston. Crookston received his PhD from the Center of Drama, Theater, and Performance Studies in collaboration with the Mark S. Bonham Center for Sexual Diversity Studies at the University of Toronto. He has taught classes on the history of sexuality, queer community engagement, and the history of drag. His research focuses on drag, LGBTQ history, and queer cultural memory. His work appears in Queer Studies in Media and Popular Culture, and new essays on Canadian theatre. However, before I get to my chat with Dr. Crookston, here is a summary from Benson and Connolly's 1987 book, English Canadian Theatre. They write, Fortune in Men's Eyes draws on Herbert's own self-proclaimed homosexuality and on his experiences in a Canadian reformatory where he was incarcerated for six months when he was 20 on a charge of gross indecency, a charge he's always denied. While Fortune in Men's Eyes speaks directly to the issues relating to homosexuality and the brutality of prison life, it is primarily concerned with human relationships and how four young men come to terms with the injustices of their childhood, denial of love, and consequent degradation. The play focuses on the education of new inmate Smitty and on his eventual corruption. His education is conducted by three fellow inmates, Rocky, a dangerous pimp, Queenie, a transvestite, coarse, cruel, tough, and voluptuously pretty, and Mona, an epicene youth of 18, whose stoicism and sensitivity represent a possible hope for Smitty. 
In the course of the play, Smitty is raped by Rocky, sexually dominated by Queenie, and in turn attempts to seduce Mona. In the final scene, Mona, a Christ-like figure, is being whipped by a guard offstage, while Smitty, now given over to violence and a criminal future, addresses the audience directly, I'll pay you all back. End of passage. The language in that passage is old-fashioned and, as you will hear in my conversation with Dr. Crookston, doesn't quite get the relationships between the four men quite right. However, it is a good place to start because one of our topics today is the use of language in describing identity. So here's my chat with Dr. Crookston. Hi, Cam. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Welcome to Dr. Canadiana Podcast. Today we are going to talk about the fortune in men's eyes in preparation for your guest lecture. Uh, so I think probably we should address this first. The mm -hmm. language, the language ah. in this play. Yeah, there's a lot of it and it's a lot of, um, I would say a lot of words that we don't use anymore and that I would classify as quite violent, mm -hmm. but um, it's hard to pick apart what is violent now to our modern ear and what was also violent then and what was also just kind of like regular speech. So I wondered if you could talk about that. Oh yeah. So there's ever so many things to say about that. And I, I have to just, I'm going to pull the thread and the whole sweater is going to come apart. So I just have to Wait. get into it. Um, so the thing about the language around sexuality and gender identity, as well as just the, those concepts, is that they are, they're really historically specific. The idea of a sexuality, the way we understand a person having a sexuality, has only been around since about the mid to late 1800s. Right. Um, gender identity actually comes a little bit later. Gender identity language doesn't actually appear until the early 1900s. Um, and this all grows out of sexology, which is an early branch of psychiatry. But not only is all of this very early in terms of like human history and Western history, but these concepts have changed a lot in the last hundred years. And I would mm -hmm. say that probably mm, one of the most tumultuous times and the times where things were changing really quickly in really complicated ways um, would have been between end of World War II and uh, the early 70s. And this so right play, when this play. Hmm. So this play was, was uh, written in the late 60s, and it's, I don't think it ever explicitly says this, but it is, historically it's implied that it takes place in 1947 because that's when John Herbert was incarcerated in a, a, a juvenile detention center in Guelph in the late 40s. Um, more on that later. Uh, so this play is set at like a time where like everything's changing really rapidly, and even between those two points, things are changing a lot. So... Yeah, and then, just for fun, it's also, um, it's not just about gender identity, generally speaking, but we're in a prison system. And we're, because prisons are uh, homosocial organizations, uh, because they're obviously people under duress, the prison system is just terrible, there is actually a pretty, like, complicated and sophisticated um, and really violent uh, way that gender plays out in terms of power dynamics here, um, which we can totally get into. But so I will just start off by saying, for one, the fact that today we have words for gender identity um, in terms of being like transgender, being cis, 
um, non-binary, and then we have words for sexuality, gay, bisexual, queer, those, and that those are discrete things that we know that like a gender identity and sexuality are really different. That has not always been the case. Um, it was really swirled together. It was, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's all meshed up there. That has only really been the, that started to become the case after like 1969. And that was a very slow uh, pulling apart of those two concepts. And uh, like even like scientifically, just the idea that there were different words for those phenomenon are something that only really happened the early, early 20th century. Um, but it takes a really long time for kind of like medical knowledge to get translated both into queer culture and the general population. So like every kind of sector picks up on, on the nuance of all those languages at different times. And prison is by no means at the cutting edge of, um, of, of social change. No, prison is not on the cutting edge of social change. So when we're reading in this, we're reading a lot of things in this play, but some of the terms that like transvestite is not something we use now. Um, absolutely not. But at the time that was, we didn't feel the same way about that word as we do now. Transvestite was cross-dressing, transvestite, that sort of thing was kind of put in I mean, it was smushed in with gay, but those were not, it wasn't a slur. No. So the word transvestite was originally invented by a sexologist named Angus Hirschfeld. Read his stuff. He's German. He's great. He was gay. And it was originally coined as an umbrella term. And it was really similar to the way we would use the word um, homosexual, or we would use the word uh, transgender. Right. Um, kind of like, it was a gender identity term, and it really encompassed all different kinds of non-conforming gender. But again, because like there is, you know, like, there's really insider medical knowledge speak, and then there's the general um, population, and the general population right. does not necessarily have their finger on the pulse of all this nuance. So for some people, transvestite means uh, cis straight guys who cross dress as a fetish. Um, for some, it means drag performance. For some, it means people who live in a way that is contrary to the gender they were assigned at birth. Um, so yeah, that term is definitely not politically incorrect, scare quotes, in the 1940s. And there really isn't a lot of other language. Even the term transsexual doesn't really hit the zeitgeist until the 50s. Uh, consider too that in the 1940s, the idea of any kind of medical intervention to help someone with their gender identity is like spanking new and really rare um, and not really making the rounds in terms of like popular culture's awareness. So the reason we have the word transvestite and transsexual in the 40s, 50s, and 60s is it's the first time in history that there's the idea of like of deciding whether or not to kind of use mental intervention. The term transgender doesn't really hit. According to the 80s, but it doesn't become popular until the mid to late 90s. So the term transvestite really up until the 80s was a term that was used pretty uh, pretty commonly and wouldn't have been seen as being offensive other than the fact that those identities were so marginalized that people often did use it as a slur. Right. And the same way that that's so gay. Um, right. Might be, might be, um, a slur. Right. Um, I also find it interesting when I read uh, historical plays and words that have been reclaimed are used in the pejorative way, like mm -hmm. queer, which now, I mean, you, you, uh, <laughs> you teach queer studies. Mm -hmm. I teach, I've taken queer studies classes. It's not uh, a slur anymore, but when uh, Smitty or Rocky or Queenie calls somebody or the guards yells, you queers, 
they're not using it in the reclaimed way. And no. so that's, that's really interesting to, to kind of say that that's how language works. So transvestite in this context is actually the kinder friendlier word and queer is the the violent word and that switches now which is i think i think something that um we have to be cautious about when we're reading historical work when we think about language i mean i will break in right now to say that at the time that this was written the word that we used for indigenous people in canada was indian but they are not using it in a kind or um good way here uh nor was it ever appropriate to use the word chinaman so i'm just going to put it out there that we are specifically talking about sexual sexuality and gender words here but there's also a whole lot of racial slurs in there that i think come because this is set in a uh, juvenile prison system in 1947 mm -hmm. and that's really what we need to know about that yeah yeah Correct. i strongly agree with that so why don't you, uh, why don't, can you break down some of the stuff that this play is doing in terms of gender stuff and sexuality stuff? Like what's going on with these people? Stop me. Okay. Fun things happening in Fortune Men's Eyes. So all the characters are having sex. Now all the characters are having sex with each other, um, but we are in an environment in which two seemingly contradictory things are happening. Men are having sex with other men. Mm -hmm. And the concept of being a queer is a marginalized identity. And those two things don't necessarily correlate. Because even though Smitty eventually, Rocky kind of perpetually, um, are both having sex with men in this play, they are not queer. No, they're not coded as queer. Um, at, they're not coded as queer, they're not labeled as queer, and they don't self-identify as queer. And part of that, I mean, I think Orange is the Black, Orange is the New Black is an interesting kind of reference to this because, I mean, you could kind of say that it has, you could kind of maybe like initially say, but it's like, well, it's kind of about um, people temporarily taking on a temporary identity based on kind of limited interactions and resources. It's like, there are no women here um, and we're here for however long. So we're going to kind of be more fluid with our sexuality, but actually, um, that's not even quite what's happening with, with the power dynamic here because sex in Fortune Men's Eyes is really used as a form of domination, as a form mm -hmm. of power. Rocky initially essentially blackmails or uh, coerces Smitty into a sexual relationship at the end of the first scene um, because he wants, he's just gonna protect him. And this is how the prison system works. Is that if you need someone to be your old man, like a buddy, air quotes, who is going to stop you from getting, you know, violently sexually assaulted um, by lots of people and generally being abused. And that relationship comes with sexual domination. Um, in order for that to be the system, in order for Rocky to take on this protective role and help him make sure that no one else is going to touch Smitty, Smitty has to take on a sexual submissive role. Right. Um, that does not mark either of them as being queer. Because Mona, ironically, is uh, labeled as like the queerest figure because she's clearly, uh, Mona's in jail because she was attacked while she was out in public, quote unquote, cross-dressing. And then the people she attacked uh, said that they came, that she came onto them. Uh, so she's thrown in jail for, um, I believe, soliciting or whatever the 1940s term for that was. Mona doesn't actually participate in the sexual uh, hierarchy of the prison. Mona refuses to get an old man. Mona's actual 
status as like a real quote-unquote queer person doesn't actually make this network any easier for her to network. So people who were queer on the outside or people who prefer having sex with men or are genuinely attracted to men don't necessarily do any better in the system and actually it marks them as being victims. Um, right. Mona is singled out and bullied and attacked more because she reads as visibly queer. I'm using she or pronouns just because often they do in the play, and I think of Mona as a trans character, and that's my 2020 brain projecting backwards. Um, my 2020 brain did uh, that too. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard not to. Um, Every time and I, I, read and I he, acknowledge story. Every time I read he in the stage directions referring to Mona, I was like, who? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, so I mean, so I think that's what's happening in this play is that like, used as a form, of, as a power structure form, um, and that's really separate from desire. Queenie's also really interesting in this configuration because Queenie is also is also obviously queer um, and very like vivacious about it. And they're really the character descriptions are so interesting. And the way he talks about Queenie is being soft but hard, and Queenie is this kind of high femme but also like bulky. And Queenie doesn't have an old man, and Queenie intentionally kind of aligns. Her, I mean, again, when they do it herself. Uh, with, with I think they're called, they're called hippos, people that mm -hmm. kind of like, or uh, politicians, like people who basically are in positions of power because of their masculinity in the prison system. So the fact that Queenie, I don't, this is never explicitly stated, but it's implied that despite the fact that Queenie understands the system really well and does not want to be under anyone, uh, she can't be a hippo herself because she's too queer. Right. Queer um, can't be an alpha in this situation. The best that Queenie can do is be a solo agent who aligns herself with power. And she doesn't like that Smitty um, has allowed himself to be dominated by Rocky because when, when Queenie, um, when, when, uh, when Queenie sees Smitty, um, she sees someone that she thinks like, you can rise to the top and I can ride your coattails there. So I need you to ascend and not be submissive to anyone else because that is a way for me to work within the system without having to be submissive of myself. And so in the second scene, there is this weird, they're calling each other mommy and daddy. Yeah. And it's implied, though not quite as explicitly because they never take a quote unquote shower together, but there's, there's some references to bed sharing and it's implied that there is a sexual relationship with between Smitty and Queenie. Uh, because again, Queenie has used her knowledge of the system to allow Smitty to move up it. And in exchange, Queenie gets essentially like, Queenie gets to kind of be the Lady Macbeth. Yeah. I can't actually ascend power because I'm a queen, but I'm fun. But I can kind of, you're my ambition proxy and I can use you as a puppet to become almost as powerful as I could if I was a quote unquote man. I mean, like one, one way to read this play in very conventional gendered roles is to just, if you read the play as Queenie and um, Mona as cis women and the other two as cis men, um, that's kind of the way the gender dynamic works in mm. terms of power and who can't, who can be and how your relationship to power, like essentially someone marked as queer or, or a woman can only access power and protection by sexually submitting to a dominant male. That's kind of what's happening here. I, I appreciate the breakdown because, yeah, I, there were things when I was reading this too where I was like, yep, projecting my 2020 eyes on this and being like, God, Miss Gendering Queenie. Also, her name's Queenie and she's like got fluffy blonde hair and they refer to Mae West anyway. So, oh, 
Okay, so here's an important thing. Because we are discussing this in the context of Canadian theater history, and this play um, is one of the, a couple of the themes that are being pulled through the course as a whole have been the idea of who the pickers are and who the choosers are of the canon and who gets to pick and choose the plays. And I think we have some interesting things to say about this. This play is in Jerry Wasserman's Modern Canadian Plays. It's in that, you know, 60s, late 60s, early 70s movement, but mm -hmm. it does not have the classic Canadian trajectory. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Sure, I mean, I can guess and speculate. Um, you're definitely, yeah. I defer to your expertise on Canadian canon. Um, of the two of us, but um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spin a theory and you tell me what you think. So I think that the timing of this play and uh, John Herbert's position within the queer community, this play had a, obviously had a lot going against it um, because they couldn't get produced in Canada. And it comes at a time, I think if this play had been um, written and produced 10 or 12 years later, it would be really differently received in the canon. I think because this is at a time before we've had our local like independent theater movement yeah um it doesn't have a much of a community to be taken up by um so it doesn't so first of all like it doesn't have a company to be associated with um and i think that's something that is like especially in toronto but but i think canada more generally is like canadian theater is a theater of um really specific community generations of venued and unvenued theaters so i think if this had been produced by TVM factory or even buddies later, or, or those theater companies had been around to support it or respond to it, this would happen really differently. But I think it happens a little too early. So it is kind of, from like a historical perspective, um, happening in a vacuum. And I think to that point, it doesn't get taken up the same way. I think one of the reasons, it's a great play, but lots of great plays don't necessarily get remembered this well by history, but I think it had such an international impact um, because it was produced in New York and France before it was produced in Canada, um, because there was a film made about it, um, which John Herbert hated. There was, there's an, a prison reform prophet that grew out of New York based on people seeing this play, it's called the Fourteen Society. So I think all of those things have kind of forced, um, not, not forced, because I think like we historians like love this play, so it's not like, oh, I'll begrudgingly acknowledge that this is amazing. But I think one thing that like allows a play that did kind of otherwise happen in this weird blip kind of before Canadian theater was quite ready. Like, oh, we were so close to ready, we were so close. Like the farm show was like almost there. But yeah, I think this play just happened a little too early and it didn't have the support structure that a play, I mean, we have such an archive and awareness of um, works done by theater companies like, like TPM, um, like Buddies, like Nightwood, because they're connected to a theater company and yeah. I think part of the way, just like, again, I think the way we as historians in Canada engage with our theater history is we very often, and it's easy, it's easy to follow a company and to look at seasons. It kind of helps us do the archival work and it puts it in a larger context. Um, so we have access to every show Buddies did for, for the 40 years it's been in existence. That just kind of creates a narrative for itself. And I think that's tricky because then I think it can simplify, sometimes oversimplify things, but this play doesn't have that because John Herbert wasn't the head of a theater company and he wasn't associated with the theater company. So yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I know that one of the people that took up John Herbert's cause and this play's cause early 
uh, was Robertson Davies. Uh, there's, I'm sure, is it in this anthology? I, can, I don't know. In my studying, Herbert was working as a waiter at the University Club at U of T. Robertson Davies, famously lecturer at U of T, and they got to talking and Herbert gave him the play and Davies was like, this is awesome. You should get this produced. What about Stratford? Passed it along to Stratford, got him all contacted. And then Stratford was like, mm, shan't pass, thank you. Because oh. like, could you see the fortune in men's eyes being produced in Stratford in the 1960s? No. Oh God. One of the, the deep ironies is this play, this huge, like this canonical Canadian we've embraced it now play was produced in the centennial year in 1967, but it was produced in New York. Also, I think it's interesting that John Herbert, his next, like the rest of his plays, like they were fine, but they, they don't come close to being as reviewed or regarded or integrated in the same way as Fortune in Men's Eyes. They, they, I've read some of the reviews and they're like, eh, it's fine or it's a bit derivative or he's kind of done this before or like this isn't as good as for Is it because they weren't as good? Did he need a dramaturg? Did he need to, like if he had gotten into a Pasmerai or a Tarragon situation, like if Urjo Correta had gotten a hold of all of his other works and dramaturged the hell out of it, would that have created a better repertoire for him? But I, I think it's it's interesting that it does have such a fraught history and yet it is in several anthologies that we mm -hmm. think of as the anthologies of Canadian theater that the pickers picked it. I mean, I think it also just kind of, and this is something that like you, it's very hard to predict and history kind of decides, but like, I think this play hits on so many important, like I, I love this play because it's such a rich, interesting time capsule of gender. Mm -hmm because it was written in about such a specific point where things were shifting so quickly, but it's also a really poignant story about the prison system. And I mean, like the, I mentioned earlier, the Fortune Society, like it's such a, for some people, it is this tragic narrative about Mona and the way that her gender identity is brutalized by the system. Um, I think for a lot of people, this is a story about how like Smitty comes in an innocent and the prison system not even necessarily the official parts of it, but just like the culture of the prison turns him into a criminal very, very quickly. Yeah. Has mm -hmm. to become that to survive. So, I mean, I think those are two really resonant things that I think have been very, un like, it's really unfortunate that like the, that the evils of the prison system and gender violence have turned out to be timeless. I wish they weren't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. but I mean, I think that is the thing that, that's a, and it's like, and it's well-written and the characters are interesting. But as in terms of this like cool little, I think also the fact that it was so autobiographical, it has like, there's like a touch of documentary in this because it was a snapshot of a real experience. So, I mean, I think that is a reason that this play in particular has been remembered or keeps getting rediscovered. Yeah. Another interesting thing that I saw because my little Canadian theater brain was on and my reading Canadian plays, I think it probably was a snapshot of a of a biographical experience. So he probably didn't do this intentionally, but I really enjoyed the like colonialism vibe that you get from having all of the, most of the guards being Englishmen with English accents. Yes. Right? And yeah. that that's the authority. And that even if 
the accent, probably this is the thing that happens with England, right? Like probably these guards that have come over here and are working in the prison system are probably working class people. They probably have working class accents, but because they're English, because they, you hear that there's a, an immediate authority, there's immediate hierarchy. The queen is, you know, the queen was then and still is Canada's head of state. So there's still, there's that patina over it of the, the people, the Canadians are in the prison and the Englishmen are looking after them. And mm -hmm. I thought, I mean, I'm not sure what that, if I was writing an English essay about it, that would be my thesis. I would tie that all in together. But I thought that that was interesting because it also, it shows another internal hierarchy. Like there's already a hierarchy within the prison system mm -hmm. with the guards and then a hierarchy within the prisons. And then they, he even makes some, some commentary that there's even, we get wind of, there's a little hierarchy between, uh, amongst the guards too. Like there's, some guards have more power than others. So there's all these hierarchies and like kind of an emblematic way i mean the only thing that could have made this more canadian hierarchy is if the prisoners were all francophone or acadian yeah maybe that predict at that time like now we would it would be a, a whole other thing but at the at the time that was that was the the tension was the Ang anglophone francophone but i that that was just my little canadian history eyeball going on mm -hmm. the play yeah final thoughts um, i mean you will get another chance uh in class for sure um yeah i'm i, I just a, a handful of, of random thoughts that i'll just scatter to the a wind. grab bag just yeah. a candy bag of thoughts i've presented yeah it, this is your this is your um your loot bag as you leave the party so yeah uh i think one thing that really fascinates me is the fact that john herbert essentially like, wrote himself as both Queenie and Mona. Mm -hmm. um, because oh, see, I've read where he's also Smitty. Oh, or God. Rocky. He's everyone. Um, <laughs> because, like, so um, his... The reason Mona's in jail is the same reason uh, that Herbert was thrown in jail. Right. Um, and Herbert did, again, putting 21st century language on someone living in the 50s is hard, but... Herbert did, quote-unquote, cross-dress in public, in his social life. He lived, at least sometimes, as a female-identified person. And that seems very Mona. And there's a lot of language in the play that kind of positions Mona's um, queerness or effeminacy as being more authentic and innate, whereas Queenie's is very showy and bombastic. But when John Herbert was in prison, he did perform this big Mae West number um, and was probably very vivacious. So yeah, so I mean, because they're presented as such like polar binaries of queerness in the play, mm -hmm. it's interesting he kind of identifies himself. They're both are kind of drawn from him. That's like just a fun fact. If people listening are, I know I kind of like breezed over the concept of gender identity and it's very tumultuous and rapidly changing history. Um, a really great resource for that is um, Susan Stryker who is a trans historian in the States. Her book, uh, Transgender History, is really good. It's really readable. It's not terribly theoretical. It's fairly plain language history. And even though I don't know this My story, favorite, plain language history. It's, it's super accessible. And she does a really good job. Like she's writing essentially a conventional history of trans identity in the last hundred or so years. But you can track the evolution of language in her writing very clearly. And she will often have these like fabulous little asides in her text where she takes a minute 
she kind of, and they, they have like a little box around them so you can like see it's different, where she kind of like pulls over and says like, we're going to unpack this term real quick. So that is, if anyone I think got a whiff of this theme in the play and wants to know more about, um, about this, I think that's really, it's a really, I think, important thing to note for this play in that it's very dangerous to project, even though we all kind of do it. I think it's just important to be aware. I wrote it, I wrote an article very recently, it's coming out soon, um, about Laverne Cox performing in Rocky Horror. And that I've she, read that article. Thank you. I appreciate that. She really struggled with the fact that she had to sing the word sweet transvestite, um, but understood that in 1975, that was, did not mean the same thing. Uh, Marsha B. Johnson, who's often quoted as one of the instigators of the Stonewall riots, by all accounts, was a trans woman, lived as a woman full-time, she, her pronouns, but used the word drag queen and never used the word transgender that we know of because it did not exist. She died in the late 80s. She didn't have a chance to live in an, in an era um, in which that was an available term. Uh, gender identity didn't have the kind of elasticity or um, hadn't made the inroads it had. So on the one hand, we need to be really careful about projecting our language backwards and judging language from the past. But at the same time, it's not just that language has changed, but our understandings of the nuance has become much, much more sophisticated. So be really critical of the language in this. And, and I think like it's important to like do the work to unpack it. Because um, this play gives you a lot to unpack. Um, and it's worth the work, because I think it's really rewarding to do that. This was great. Thanks so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, Cam, it's getting cold. Yes, it is. What the hell am I going to wear to all these outdoor socially distant weddings? <gasps> Tooks and Socks, T-O-O-K-N-S-O-X. For $20 a month, you get a toque and a pair of matching socks. Cheapers, Ashley. That is the deal of the century. Sure is. Is there a promo code? Fortune. The topic of identity will be taken up in next week's podcast when we examine our next two entries into the canon of Canadian drama and theatre. To begin, we'll talk about George Riga's The Ecstasy of Rita Joe, a play that was commissioned as a centennial project by Vancouver Playhouse. This play, more than just having been written for and produced in 1967, is canonical because the subject matter Riga chose his position as a theater rebel, and being relatively new to playwriting. The play is based on a real incident reported in a Vancouver newspaper about an indigenous woman whose murdered body was found in a rooming house. Writing in their 1987 book, English Canadian Theater, Benson and Connolly say, the play is, quote, a searing image of the destruction by an insensitive and brutal white society of the value of British Columbia Indians, end quote. An early review of the play in the Vancouver Sun says, quote, playwright George Riga peeled off a cicatrice of Canadian society and showed the bleeding flesh beneath, end quote. These are heavy critical topics for a play ostensibly written in celebration of Canada's 100 years as a country. Riga was not an Indigenous playwright, but he did bring to the stage for the first time an unvarnished perspective of the treatment of Canada's Indigenous population. We will put Riga's play in conversation with a play I consider part of the more contemporary canon, Marie Clemens' The Unnatural and Accidental Women. 
Clemens is a Métis playwright, and this play is about missing and murdered Indigenous women from downtown east side of Vancouver, whose deaths from extremely high blood alcohol levels were caused by one man. Her topic, Vulnerable Indigenous Women, is similar to Riga's. However, her identity as a woman and Métis, and her play being written 33 years after Rita Joe, make her treatment of it quite different. Before I go, I would like to issue a clarification. In my interview today with Cameron Crookston, I say that Stratford declined to produce Fortune in Men's Eyes. This was an error. The festival did produce a workshop of the play in 1965. I think we meant a full production within a full season. We regret the misunderstanding. So, until next time, eh? Sources consulted for this episode include Jerry Wasserman's Modern Canadian Plays, Benson and Connolly's English Canadian Theatre, the Canadian Theatre Encyclopedia entries for Fortune in Men's Eyes, John Herbert, George Riga, and Marie Clemens.